our theme for this year is simply this, living the extraordinarily blessed life. Well, what's the difference in the extraordinarily blessed life and the blessed life? Amen. The extraordinarily blessed life is to be extraordinarily blessed all the time because that is not the condition of most believers. We go from blessing to blessing, and in between there's this dip, this valley where things go back to what I hate to call normal, but that's what it is. And then we find ourselves in need of God and we get a hold of God and pray ourselves through to another breakthrough. Suppose we were to find a place where God blessed us continually. According to scripture, such a place does exist. I'm not going to read the, the verses, but we've been using them and I mention them each Sunday, even though I don't always read them, just so you will read them. If you will read them every day in your personal devotions, I promise you, it will transform your life. Psalms 1, verses 1 through 4, where it speaks about blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. There's a word right there for this whole political process. That he'd be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Amen. Brings forth his fruit and season and so forth. Psalms 92, 13, 15. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bear fruit in old age, be fresh and flourishing. And I've been teaching about being planted, fruitful, and flourishing. And now I'm in a series on the fruit of the Spirit. In this series, we're actually talking about how you can see the extraordinary favor and blessing of God upon your life that these verses describe. And this is because where God's presence is, his extraordinary and life-changing favor will always, without exception, be found. If God's presence is there, what accompanies that is the transformative, life-changing favor of God Almighty. Psalm 16 and 11, in your presence is fullness of joy. Notice what happens. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the favor of God. When Solomon built the temple, God's presence filled the house so completely that even the priests were unable to minister and perform their priestly responsibilities. The presence of God came in like a visible cloud, and because of the unusual degree of God's presence that came upon Israel, did you know the scripture teaches that Israel entered into the greatest and most prolonged season of favor and continuous blessings that they have ever known in their entire illustrious history? And to this day, they have not seen its equal. They haven't even seen close to it. Because to the manner, or to the degree, I should say, that God's presence comes in to that same degree, his extraordinary favor also comes in. In fact, in his dedicatory prayer for the newly constructed temple, 10 different times you will read in Second Chronicles 6, Solomon prayed that God when your people turn toward this place where you have placed your presence, that they would find favor and that God would hear. I've always known that God hears our prayers regardless of where we pray them. At home, wherever you may be, on the job, in your car. But this prayer that Solomon prayed in God's response has made me aware that there is one place where there is a marked increase in the likelihood of your prayers being answered if you pray them there. After 10 times asking God, when you turn, when your people turn to you and toward this place, if they're in captivity, if they turn their faces, which is why Jews turn toward the east when they pray, no matter where they are, and then he even included strangers, 
if we turn toward the house of God, then hear. And God's response was this, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Notice what he said. He said, my name will be there. That's me. That's my presence. Who are you? I am the I am. But my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually or forever. What is that? That's the extraordinary favor that I'm talking about. So when God's presence enters a place, he changes the atmosphere to reflect his nature because his heart is his divine nature. His eyes, as I said, this has to do with the favor of God, as does his heart as well. But the heart more specifically focuses in on what is the very character of God. And when God comes into a place, it's like a vacuum suddenly being filled with something. You, you open the vacuum and air rushes in. When That happens when you receive the Holy Spirit. When God comes into your heart, instantly all kind of other stuff gets squeezed out. Like water squeezes out oil because oil is lighter than water. And put them both in the same container and the oil will be displaced. This is what happens when God's presence comes. And there's a name for this when it happens within you. When God's presence comes within you and this other stuff, stuff starts getting squeezed out, the name that we give that is that we call it the fruit of the Spirit. We've talked about five of them. There are nine of them mentioned that Paul mentions in Galatians chapter 5. I want to speak about the sixth today. And here they are. We'll just read them. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness. And now today I want to talk about goodness. Father, I ask that you would speak with us now in that way that you have that bypasses our, our thought processes and goes all the way into our heart to leave a deposit there. Change the way we think by causing your word to challenge us and inspire us because we all want to live. And I, my prayer for this, this church is that we will experience the extraordinarily blessed life. And everybody shouted and said, amen. Shout it out loud. Amen. Do you like sports? I want to speak today from the subject goodness, God placing his integrity in you. Sports may look like a strange place to go to discuss that subject, but we live in a time when people do not have absolute values anymore. In fact, years ago, in the latter part of the last century, the decade of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they began to openly teach what was called situational ethics and do away with moral absolutes. And people began to believe in moral relativism. And their conviction upon a situation and about whether certain action was right or wrong depended upon the situation. And I picked something up the other day. It comes from the police chief in Lake Charles, Louisiana, where my sister has served for 32 years. And she has been for many years the assistant to the chief of police. He's former FBI and again, I want to say I take my hat off to all of our wonderful law enforcement personnel that are kind and dedicated 
and serve our community. We have many of them in this church. I just mentioned one of them a moment ago. We got your back. We're praying for you. The story is written by Chris Sperry, well-known sports writer and baseball consultant who was a coach at the time, and he tells how in Nashville, Tennessee, during the first week of January 1996, more than 4,000 baseball coaches descended upon Opryland Hotel in Nashville, Tennessee for the 52nd Annual Convention of the American Baseball Coaches Association Conference. And he wrote, while he was in line waiting to register with the hotel staff, he heard a number of the other more veteran coaches talking about the lineup of speakers scheduled to present during that weekend. And he said one name in particular kept coming up over and over again. And every time it did, the sentiment was the same. Coach John Scolinas is here. Wow. Oh, man. That's worth every penny of my airfare. So he then wondered, who is John Scolinas? No matter, he decided he was just happy to be there. In 1996, Coach Scalinas was 78 years old and five years retired from a college coaching career that began in 1948. Some of you would remember his name. And when it came time for him to speak, he shuffled to the stage to an impressive standing ovation, but he was wearing dark polyester pants, a light blue shirt, and a string around his neck from which home plate hung. A full-size, stark-white home plate. Seriously, Chris says, he wondered, who is this guy? And after speaking for 25 minutes without once mentioning the home plate around his neck, Chris and everybody else began to wonder if he was a little addled. Something was missing upstairs. And then finally, Coach Kalina said, you're probably all wondering why I'm wearing home plate around my neck, or maybe you think I escaped, and he named the mental state hospital nearby. And then with his voice growing irascible, he said, no, I may be old, but I'm not crazy. The reason I stand before you today is to share with you baseball people what I've learned in my life and what I've learned about home plate in my 78 years. Several hands went up when Scalinas asked how many Little League coaches were in the room. And when the hands went up, he then asked, do you know how wide home plate is in Little League? There was a pause and someone in the back offered 17 inches. More of a question than an answer. And he bellowed, that's right. How about in Babe Ruth League? How many Babe Ruth coaches in the house? And a few tentative hands were raised. They were afraid to raise their hands. Another long pause. And he said, how wide is home plate in Babe Ruth baseball? baseball? And again, from another corner of the room, a tentative 17 inches. And he bellowed, that's right. How many high school coaches do we have in the room? And hundreds of hands shot up as the pattern began to appear. How wide is home plate in ba high school baseball? 17 inches, all the high school Coaches answered, you're right, he barked, and you college coaches, how wide is home plate in college? 17 inches, and now everybody was shouting it out together. Any minor league coaches here? And hundreds of hands went up. He said, how wide is home plate in pro ball? 17 inches. And what about major league coaches? How many of you are here? How wide is home plate in major league baseball? And they all roared 17 inches and above them all, he said, 17 inches. 
confirming their answer with a response that echoed off the walls. And he said, what do we do with a pitcher? Big league, major league, who can't throw the ball over 17 inches. And he paused and said, I'll tell you what we do. He named a little town in Idaho. We send him to a form league there. What we don't do is this. We don't say, ah, that's okay, Jimmy. You can't hit a 17-inch target. We'll make it 18 inches or 19. We'll make it 20 just for you so you can have a better chance of hitting it. And if you can't hit that, let us know. We'll make it wider still, say 25 inches. And he paused and the whole room got quiet. And he said, coaches, what do we do when our best player shows up late to practice, when our team for rules forbid facial hair and a guy shows up unshaven? What if he gets caught drinking? Do we hold him accountable? Or do we change the rules to fit him? Or do we widen home plate? And the chuckles about him wearing the home plate on a string around his neck faded as 4,000 coaches grew quiet The fog lifting as the old man's message began to unfurl and unfold. He turned the home plate toward himself and pulled out a sharpie and began to draw something on it. When he turned it back toward the crowd, he did it like this. So the point is facing up and a house was revealed complete with a freshly drawn door and two windows. And he said, this has been the problem in our homes, with our marriages, with the way we parent our kids, with our discipline. We no longer teach accountability to our children and there's no consequence in society for failing to meet the standards of society. We instead widen the plate. Then he turned it back and drew something else and turned it back around. There was an American flag on the top of the the house and he said, this is the problem also. In the schools, the quality of our education is going downhill fast and teachers have been stripped of the tools they need to be successful and to educate and discipline our young people. We are allowing others to widen home plate. And where is that getting us? And then he raised the flag and drew a cross. And here's the problem where in the church, powerful people in positions of authority have taken advantage of others even young children, only to have such an atrocity swept under the rug for years. Our church leaders are widening home plate. And Chris Spiri said, I was amazed. At a baseball convention where I expected to learn something about curveballs and bunting and how to run better practices, I had learned something far more valuable. From an old man with home plate hanging on a string about his neck, I had learned about life, myself, and my own weaknesses, and my responsibilities as a leader. I had to hold myself and others accountable to that which I knew was right, lest our families, our faith, and our society, and our nation continue down an undesirable path. And Coach Scalinas concluded, if I'm lucky, you will remember one thing from this old man today. It is this. If we fail to hold ourselves to a higher standard, a standard of what we know to be right, if we are unwilling or unable to provide a consequence when we do not meet the standards, and if our schools and churches and our government fails to hold themselves accountable for those they serve, there's only one thing to look forward to. And he flipped the home plate around so that the black bottom was facing out, and he said, there's nothing but dark days ahead.
Coach Kalinas died in 2009 at the age of 91. And Chris said not before he had touched the lives of countless thousands of players and coaches, including his. It was his first ABCA convention. But he said that's what kept him going back year after year. And to this day, Coach Galinas remains the best clinician that they've ever produced. His message was clear. clear. Coaches, keep your players, no matter how good they are, your own children, and most of all, yourself within the principles of what is right, don't widen the plate. Amen. Integrity, because that's what goodness means in Scripture. Might be a little humorous hearing what Coach Kalina said from something a couple of decades ago, considering that that things like facial hair, no big deal and all of that, and probably weren't all that much then, but there was a time, just so that you'll understand the context, that parents actually expected major figures that were celebrities in the United States, the sports industry, the entertainment industry, and other places, they expected them to embrace values so they could have assistance rendered to them in their role of raising their kids. We held up people that had values. Now, people do whatever they want, and you tell them, you need to be a role model, and they say, what are you talking about? And the plate has been widened. But the Greek word in the Bible for goodness there means moral uprightness, and it is translated in the Bible a number of different ways, but every single time when that word is used, what it actually means is integrity. And integrity is defined as an adherence to moral and ethical principles and soundness of moral character. It means to be undivided, whole, complete, honest. Fair. And the reason that I mention this as being one of the characteristics of God is because everything I've just said is exactly who God is. He's whole, He's complete, He's honest, He's fair, He's completely sound in His judgment. God always does what is right, unlike many of us that dependent upon the circumstance and who's watching might or might not do the right thing. Integrity for us is often determined by the situation. I heard about a respectable lady who went into a pharmacy, walked up to the pharmacist, looked him straight into his eyes and said, I'd like to buy some cyanide. And the pharmacist said, ask, why in the world do you need cyanide? And the lady calmly replied, I needed to poison my husband. And the pharmacist's eyes got big, and he exclaimed, Lord have mercy, ma'am. I can't give you cyanide to kill your husband. That's against the law. I'll lose my license. They'll throw both of us in jail. All kind of bad things will happen. Absolutely not. You cannot have any cyanide. The lady calmly opened her purse, pulled out a picture of her husband kissing the pharmacist's wife.
the pharmacist looked at the picture and replied, well, now, <laughs> that's different. You didn't tell me you had a prescription. Amen. <laughs> Integrity. It does not mean perfection. Because if we hear words like this, many of us right away go straight on a guilt trip. But if you look at the biblical definition, integrity does not mean perfection. Because everyone you know errs and makes mistakes. Everybody. And if integrity were being perfect, no one alive has integrity. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4 and 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels made of clay that the glory may be of God and not of ourselves. Amen. In fact, when you look at the Bible, there are a number of people that God said had integrity. Noah was one of them. Abraham had integrity. Moses had integrity. How do I know? God said they did. And yet none of them were perfect. Mo Noah got drunk. Abraham lied about his relationship with Sarah and Moses became angry, so angry in fact that he cursed the people he was supposed to lead and broke the tablets of stone that God had given him carved with God's very own fingertip. The Ten Commandments. Amen. And yet God said they had integrity. Read what God told Solomon about another guy. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness to do according to all that I've commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then they see 7,000 promises in the Bible, and every one of them have a premise. And the premise is, if you will do this, then this is what I'll do. I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. As I promised David your father saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. What did God just call David? A man of integrity, of heart. David is the guy that got drunk. Made Uriah get drunk. And then sent Uriah with his own death letter to the front lines because David had been carrying on an affair with Uriah's wife in which she had now become pregnant with child. God actually used a man. Can you believe this? This blows my mind as an example of integrity that clearly at times had lapses of integrity. And it's important that I point this out because I know that every one of us, we come from the same stock. I hear a lot of talk these days about different races. There's only one human race. Different ethnicities. Some of us have been out in the sun a little longer than others, but hey, hey, I'm serious. I have enough Cajun blood. I get out in the sun. I used to preach in West Texas, and when I get out in the sun, I turn dark. Dark. I had some of the Hispanic folks slip up to me in some of those meetings and say, hey, bro, you one of us? Yeah, I'm one of you. I'm part of the human race. Amen. Every single one of us are made of flesh. The difference in David and so many others is that others were confronted and became arrogant and said, no, 
That's what society today is doing. We're not going to listen to God. Not going to listen to his word. We're going to go our own way. David, when the prophet Nathan came, this was his response. I am the man. Created me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Wow. And God said, that's integrity. Because integrity is not perfection. To build integrity in your life, it really helps to understand the nature of integrity. What does it consist of? And this is important because we're talking about God now. This is God's heart. And this is what he wants to form in us. The first thing we should understand about integrity is that integrity means wholeness. W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S. In fact, the word integrity evolved from the Latin adjective integer, meaning whole or complete. An integer in English is a number that is whole and not a fraction. Having integrity thus means to not compartmentalize your life and divide it into parts. You keep it whole. What does that mean, Pastor? It means you don't do one thing here with this group and something else with this group over here. Amen. You don't divide your life. If you're living a different way with your friends and you are at church, or one way at home with your family than when you're with the boys, you know what I mean? With the boys. Let my hair down. You already are in need of integrity in your life. And a way to find out if you have integrity is to ask yourself this question. Here's one that's going to really make the whole congregation go quiet. Would you like what you do when you're with certain groups of people to be known by everybody sitting around you right now? Because most of us would admit that there are times that we have given in to social pressure and the need to be accepted and we've ended up compartmentalizing our life. The word integer is literally where we get the word integration. Integration is the opposite of segregation, which is to divide people up into little groups based on income or race or religion or some other thing. And instead of dividing, what we need to be doing in this country is uniting people. Well, I need a better amen than that. Amen. Uniting people. It was Martin Luther King Jr. that I've quoted before who said, we didn't all come here on the same ships, but we're all in the same boat now. And we are. We should seek to unite humanity. We're all one race, as I said a while ago. But you also have to unite the different components of your life to have holiness because holiness, H-O-L-I-N-E-S-S, which is what God wants from us because God is holy. Holiness is wholeness. It was Shakespeare who said, to thine own self be true and it must follow as the night the day that thou canst not be false then to any man. It was the great C.S. Lewis who was once a prominent atheist and don at Oxford University who became converted who later said this, integrity is doing the right thing when no one is looking. And with men, can can I talk to men just for a minute or two? Hey guys, with us, you know what it is. It's power, it's money, and it's sex. 
Holy hush descended on the house just then. PMS, it's a man's thing, not a woman's thing. PMS, power, money, sex. These are the areas you will be tempted with in your life. Trust me, you will be tested. You will be tested. And you're going to be tested to do some things at some times that you would never give in to doing if your wife were there or the church were there. And what you've got to do is guard your heart so that these things never create in you a divided heart. Amen. And it's this whole thing about moral relativism that has watered this down to such a place that now people don't see the harm in some fudging the lines in some areas. Integrity also means being real and genuine. And another word that we could use for being real and genuine is being authentic. To be authentic simply means to not be fake. In ancient Greek theater, Actors would wear masks to show the appropriate emotion. They'd still do the same thing in Asia. You want to go to a traditional theater in Japan or China or Korea, some of those places, the actors will play different roles, but what they will do is put on masks and they will demonstrate different emotions. So if the, 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 the play calls for anger, the actor will turn away from the stage and slap on a mask that shows fierce anger, turn and utter his lines, speak his lines, and then if he calls for joy, turn back, put the mask down, get up another one, pick up another one with a big smile, turn back, and he's smiling, and then cite the lines for that part. And from that, we get the word, the Greek word, hypocritos. Hypocritos in the Greek was what they called these people in the ancient Greek theater. They were speaking behind the mask and the word hypocritos is where we get our word hypocrite from. It simply means to speak, speak, behind, speak behind, behind, behind a mask. And I wonder how many of us have been hurt by people that were speaking from behind masks. How many have we might possibly have injured? Amen. I can tell you, you don't get into relationships in this world without that being a number one concern. Is this the real person I'm talking to or is that a mask? Come on, help me out here. This is one reason I'm not knocking Facebook. I'm not. Don't think I am. But if you got 10,000 friends on Facebook, you know what I say? I doubt it. Amen. They may call themselves your friend, but that's not really your friend. I'll say it again. Send each one of them a request for a dollar and see how many defriended requests you get. Amen. Your, num your list will go down considerably. There's huge dissonance between who people are and who they want you to think they are. In fact, image is who you think you are. Reputation is who people think you are. But integrity is who God thinks you are. And why do we allow ourselves to speak from behind masks anyway? We fear rejection. We don't any, want anybody to cut us out, talk bad about us, not like us. All of us have an innate need for acceptance. Because like it or not, 
Your future in this world and your future happiness and whether you ever live the extraordinarily blessed life is it's going, a part of that, a component of that will be that you're going to need people in your life. Amen. You can't be happy. Uh, you can have 10 million quadrillion dollars living on the top of a mountain out in the woods somewhere, but if there's nobody else around, trust me, you're going to be miserable. You have to have people in your life. And we fear rejection. And so what we do is at a subliminal and subconscious level, we'll often cave. And by the way, that's what all this is up here. I think uh, I'm preaching from the cave today. Vacation Bible school is coming. And so that's what all this is out in the halls and everything. But there's a dissonance between who we want to appear to be and who we actually are. You really want to make somebody angry? Treat them the way they really are rather than who they think they are. Oh. We will have a conversation. There's even a greater dissonance between how people see you and how God sees you. Samuel looked at David's older brothers and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And God spoke and said, nope, you missed it. You're looking at the outward appearance I'm looking at the heart. Integrity also means keeping your motivation pure. And I'm already about to close. It means you do the right things for the right reasons. It's not just enough to do right. The Pharisees said, ha ha, we caught her in the act of committing adultery. This is what's right. And they felt pretty good about themselves until Jesus then made them look at their heart. Because you see, real integrity is not just doing what's right, it's having the right heart. One of the most insightful scriptures in the Bible is found in 2 Chronicles 25 and 2, and it says this, He, that is King Amaziah, son of Joash, did that what was, did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal, King James says, perfect heart. His heart wasn't in it. He did the right thing, but he didn't do it from the right place in his heart. This is one reason that people do all of the right stuff. The Bible is not about formulas that you can follow, not about talismans and rabbit's foots and, and oh, come on, lucky seven. And it's not about using scripture as, as your little recipe to get to the next level in your life. The Bible is all about God bringing you back to the place that man was created to live that's so far above where most of us live right now, and then in so doing, restoring to us the extraordinarily blessed life that was what was supposed to have been ours before the fall. Amen. That's what it's really all about. And you see, integrity is not just obedience to the law. Integrity is having the right heart. And you know what God said about this guy? You're doing what's right, but it's not accepted because your heart's not in it. And it's your heart that I want. What God wants from each one of us is our heart, beloved. He wants holiness in our lives. He wants to form within us his divine character. 
Why? Because when he puts his heart within us and his character is placed within us, guess what? His hands go where his heart goes. If I leave the house, I don't take my heart with me and leave my hands at home. My hands go wherever the rest of me go. And what God wants to do is demonstrate once again in this world his power, his divine rule, his authority, his superiority, and his excellence. God wants to once again be upheld and lifted high and rule the world in which we live. And the only way he can do that is to work through his people to recreate in us his heart. And once his heart is formed, then his hands can work. Now, that simply means that there's a law above the law, doesn't it? That it's not just about complicit agreement and compliance with what the scripture says. Because you can do everything the scripture says and your heart be terrible. But it's about submitting your heart to God and saying, Father, create in me your heart. Mold me and shape me. I hope you pray that every day of your life. I hope you say, Father, I want to be more like you. Amen. Lessen me more of you, God. Reveal through me who you are and let your favor and blessing upon my life be so powerful that everybody can look at me and say, wow, that's the kind of life I'd rather live right there. Don't look for perfection because you're not going to find it. Amen. You're not going to find it anywhere. And everybody that's ever left the church because somebody wasn't perfect, guess what? If there was a perfect church, they wouldn't let you join. Can I do my Stevie Wonder impression right now? If there was a perfect church, they wouldn't let you join. They wouldn't let me either. Why? Because the moment we joined, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. Create in us the right heart, oh God. Make us passionate about pursuing after you and let your character be formed within us.